You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Here we go again. How many threads connect a family through the generations? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, a conversation with Neil Wooten, the author of With the Devil's Help. After the break, singer-songwriter Audrey Jones stops by. Neil, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Larry. So let me just mention the subtitle, because that tells an awful lot and leaves a lot to wonder about your life story and your family story. The subtitle is A True Story of Poverty, Mental Illness, and Murder. Now, here's my first takeaway from reading this book and thinking about it a lot. It reminds me of a three-act play. First act is your grandfather, Pete. Second act is Travis. And the third act is you. And like a stage play, characters are coming in and out throughout my play, your book, and a lot of flashbacks. So I want to thank you so much because that's the way I kind of interpret your book. Your thoughts about that? I never thought of it that way, but yeah, that that makes sense. Um, I, I think I wanted to show the similarities of my dad and my granddad. I mean, they were so much alike in so many ways, except for the fact that my dad uncharacteristically had Native American features from his grandmother. Right. Uh, the Wooten men in this area have just very light hair, blue eyes. And and Dad, uh, if you've seen the pictures of him in the book, I don't know if you've seen the pictures, but he had the, uh, if you see the Army picture especially, you can see the Native American features he had. But their mentality was the same. And they, they used a lot of the same words, a lot of the same old country phrases. And, uh, uh, you know, really just, he just carried on where his dad, and, and the weird thing is he wasn't raised by his dad. He was raised by his grandparents. His dad was not much of a dad at all. Right. He's gone most of the time, but he still picked up those traits from his father. So, so here's the obvious question. It's You've probably been asked this many times because I believe you've written 18 books. So you're an expert in answering all kinds of questions. Who is this book for? Is it for you? Is it for your family members? Or is it for people like me, the generally reading population? You know, that's a good question. I never thought about telling this story. I, I didn't even think I was allowed. You know, when I was a kid, there were two topics we were not allowed to discuss. And that was our home life, which we never let anybody come to our home except very, very close relatives. And our grandfather, you know, we weren't allowed to talk about those things. So, you know, when you learn something as a kid, it kind of follows you into adulthood. So I never thought I was even allowed to tell it, even though my dad's been gone for 19 years. And frankly, I'm still afraid he might show up and be a little upset about it. Uh, I never thought about it. So, yeah, I just wrote fiction. I was my earlier books were science fiction. I have a legal thriller and some other fiction and historical fiction. And I'll tell you what happened one day a few, year, uh, a few years ago. There's a fellow here 
a local fellow in Fort Payne, Alabama that has a Facebook page called the Cab County, Alabama Historical Group. Right. And he finds these old newspaper clippings, some going back to the 1800s and, you know, points of interest in the town. And he posts those and I love reading them. And one day I just shocked to see the article from 1962 where my grandfather shot his son-in-law over potatoes. So I messaged him on there and I said, we know that was my granddad. And so he wanted to know more than other people started commenting and saying, well, how did that, he shot him over potatoes? What was that about? And it just dawned on me that maybe this is a story that I need to tell now finally and i know that when my mom and i are gone then the story is going to be lost forever so i think the time in which is rising to be to be honest i would probably been too embarrassed to write it earlier when i was younger it was just uh because like i say the people i went to school with my whole life had no idea about my life so well, I want to touch upon what I call the great potato mystery, because I think there's different interpretations of what happened. You know, when I'm reading your book, I'm reading James Lee Burke's new book, and he is a terrific crime fiction writer. I think the book is called oh, Every Cloak Rolled in Blood. And the reason why I mention that is I saw so many similarities between your book, a memoir of nonfiction, and his book, Fiction. And really, it's about my interpretation. It's about people on the margins trapped by their own circumstances and dealing with their demons. James Lee Burke does it in his style, and I think you did it in your style in terms of your memoir, your nonfiction book. Yeah, is that, yeah. Is that a question? That is a question, or a response, whatever you want to do. Oh, uh, I think uh, with my granddad and dad, it was all about dealing with their demons. I think, really, thinking about my dad, I think really what the deal was with him is, is he was so intelligent. He really was an intelligent, and my grandfather too, especially in math, very intelligent. And I really think that he had the ability to make something of himself, but he didn't have the know-how. He didn't have the structure behind it. And I think it was just always frustrating for him. I think it's kind of like winning, you know, buying the winning lottery ticket and then when the numbers hit, you can't find it anywhere. You know you have the, you know you, you have it to make it, but you can't find it. So I, and, and he also thought that he was a great father because he compared himself to his father, who was horrible. And his father probably, the rare times he was around, probably beat him a whole lot worse than what me and my sisters got it. So when he would do things that were normal father things that we we saw it, you know, like maybe even giving us lunch money, which he never did. That was mom. But using that as an example, something that we would see as normal, he thought was extraordinary. And he wanted praise for that. And he, when he didn't get it, uh, I think all these little things, these were the demons he dealt with, I think. And, and it came out violently. So, I want to follow up on that, and I'll tell you why. Once again, my guest is Neil Wooten. His new book is called With the Devil's Help. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. Probably the most successful memoir in many years was The Glass Castle by Jeanette Waltz. And one thing she told me was, this is my story. These are my memories. My siblings may have different memories and different interpretations. Early in the book, and I had to really think about this, because you talked about your dad's demons, and he could be brutal. 
I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, if I have the wrong age and circumstances, but I believe you were about four years old and you're in the house and there's a broken glass of water and his reaction, um, I want you to talk about that, but also in the context of this is your memory. Can your memory at the age of four be come back, recovered at the, where you are in your life right now? How accurate was that assessment? You're four years old, a broken glass of water, and the way you render the story is he really t took the belt to you. Now, let me be very clear on that first chapter. I don't think I've told anyone this. The part in the first chapter about Sister Johnson coming to visit, I remember vaguely. The part about getting whipped with the buckle, I have absolutely no memory of. My older sister told me that story many times, and I was actually three years old when that happened. But when trying to put the book together in a format that would fit, um, I had to do it from ages four to 13. So I was actually three when that happened, but I don't have memory. I have memory of everything else in the book. I, I'm one of those people, I go to my high school class reunions and I tell all my old classmates these great things that happened to us in school and they just right. stand there right. with blank stares. I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, but the, the more time passes, I remember things in detail, but that particular whipping I don't remember I just remember my sister telling me about it so many times so that one I really just relied on her memory for okay so the way for a daily thing I mean I didn't I didn't want to make the book I couldn't tell about them all I just tried to give people the you know paint the picture but we we me and Julene now my sister Nina of course was a lot smarter she never got you know, the belt. And dad didn't always use the belt. I mean, he would use his hands sometimes. He would use a stick sometimes, whatever was handy. But his belt, 90% of the time, that was the handiest thing to use. When I sit down to read and just think about life in general, the outside world and what's going on today, I don't want to get too political. I'm always looking for what I call acts of nobility. Were there acts of nobility in your family or in a sense, was the reverse operating there? Because there's so many horrific things going on to so many family members. Can you speak to that and see if uh, you can kind of give us some kind of insights that you have about that? Do you mean on a, on a family level or a world level? I well, let, we're talking about your family, but you can take the conversation anywhere you want to go. But I, this is something that I think about an awful lot in my life, in lives beyond my world my brief experience, what's going on. But I really thought about, are there, gonna, are there acts of nobility in families? And beyond that, is there a carryover value? Well, the thing, is, let's talk about my dad in that context for a second, because I didn't want to paint just the horrible side of him. Obviously, that helps with the book, you know, for people to see that. But my dad, certainly, I mean, he was very caring and loving probably 80% of the time, which that made it even more difficult, really. He was very caring. And he, I mean, some of his acts of nobility in the book, like what he did for his little brother, you know, were violent, but still noble. And even what he did for me when the coach hit me with the belt, you know, across the chest. So, uh, so dad had it in him. And if anybody needed help, you know, and, and, and I would say we didn't have a neighborhood. We were very rural and homes were far apart. You know, dad was the first one to chip in and do anything for anyone. If he had money to give, I mean, he gave his sister's money all the time. One in particular, he gave her money probably 
every month for, you know, if he, we didn't have a lot of money, but she sometimes had less. So, I mean, I won't say that he wasn't a noble person a lot of the times, you know, and, and, and to be honest, most people outside the immediate family and very close relatives, my first cousins all knew this about him. They knew you had to walk on eggshells because his temper, you just never knew. And the things that upset him were so silly. There were things you want, not major, major things like knocking the glass over and stuff like that. But uh, people outside that circle of close relatives, they only saw this very charming man. I mean, he knew more jokes and riddles than, you know, he, he's like me. He, he, if he read something or heard something, he retains it forever. And, uh, and he was, like I say, very intelligent, but he was very loving and caring and people saw that. And that's what most people, that's all they saw. They didn't see behind the front door of our, our house and what was going on. Neil, if you don't mind, because a lot of people are not aware of the rural South, in your case, Alabama, what is the time frame of this book with the devil's help? What is the what? Time frame. The, the, oh, the, the, the time that you cover in this book, it's quite expensive, expansive. Well, it only spans 10 years in the even, I mean, the odd number of chapters, one through 19, which is told from the perspective of my family, is me from age four, which is 1969, to age 13, which was 1978. So that's all it spans on the one side of the book. The other side of the book goes back to 1926, on my grandfather's side, and it ends in 1969. The book actually ends exactly where it begins, which I, I don't know if that's ever been done. I don't know how many people catch that, you know, that the, it ends with exactly the same two words where it begins, but it's told from a different side, a different point of view. Can you share with us the relationship you had with your siblings, especially the two older ones? I believe one of them was your protector and the family's protector while you were in public school. Is that accurate? Oh, absolutely. Uh, she never had to protect me in school, actually, but Nina was such a, she was such a, a gentle person. You know, she was, uh, I, I don't know the best way to describe it, but there was, uh, you know, she was bright, she was sweet, but there was that link missing, that social link. So she didn't understand the parameters of making friends. She thought everybody could be your friend and, uh, and so people picked on her a little bit in school. And Julianne, that was part of, that was a huge part of her high school. And she has resentment about that. You know, I mean, uh, Nina passed away about 10 years ago. But Julianne always had resentment because that, you know, nobody wants to be in a fight in school, but she had no choice. And uh, so, yeah, she always had resentment about this. So, yeah, we were very tight. I mean, I, I think I describe it in the book as like soldiers, you know, who, who survived war. You know, obviously we were not put through what a soldier in war is put through, but the bond was somewhat similar because we had survived the enemy as well. So you come, you come from a family unit going from back your grandfather to you, to your father, to you and your siblings. And as a part of the book, that speaks has great introspection in a sense about we all come from family units. A lot of us come from divorced families. A lot of us think that the next family is better than ours, neighbor on the left, neighbor on the right. You were, I guess, a very, very good athlete. You were playing baseball. At one point, you went to stay at your baseball coach's house 
And yeah. I guess maybe that's, I hate to phrase the new normal, but in a sense, you're seeing something you had witnessed and before. Is that true? Well, that's, that's absolutely true. Ninth grade, that was in that one year we lived in Rome, Georgia. I played baseball, yeah, for like 10 years and football for about eight years and uh, very competitive. And that was, uh, dad was always proud of my achievements, but only because it reflected on him. You know, if I did poorly, I got home, I paid for that too. But uh, yeah, the, uh, the thing about my coach, you know, uh, another interviewer asked me, did you know that things weren't normal in your home? And I didn't know they weren't normal. I thought we had it a little rougher because our dad was so strong. He was such a powerful and fast. I mean, they the, talk about the running in the book. These guys could run. I was very fast too, but only up until, uh, you know, probably mid-20s, you know, my grandfather was just uh, super fast. So I thought we had it a little worse. So, yeah, that one visit to the coach's house, my dad sold stainless steel cookware in this company that he sold for, and he did it when he wanted to, once, three, four times a year. I mean, he didn't put himself into it like he could have because he was an excellent salesman. He could read people very well. So they went to this uh, big convention that the they put on every year. It's the only year they ever went. And we were playing a playoff game. I played for the uh, Dodgers and we were playing the Bears. You know, we both had lost one game in the season. So the winner would be the champions and get to send the most kids to the all-star game. So a very important game. So the coach let me stay with him. That was my first experience outside of maybe a, a, a very close cousin, maybe sleeping over. And I don't even remember sleeping over to cousins before age nine, but yeah, spending that weekend uh, about three days with my coaches uh, and his, he had one son, so it was totally different. And they lived in a nice home, you know, right, brick home. Right. And uh, it was all a different experience, but it was just how they interacted. Yeah. I thought the coach was the strange one, the way he treated his son, like the, equal, like a human being, you know, and then never raised his voice, much less took his belt off to him, you know? And so, yeah, I thought the coach was the odd one there. You know, in some cases, um, education is important. In your in the family's history, a lot of people who are self-educated, dropped out of school at a very young age. I believe reading the book that you didn't really enjoy school at all. But the thread through this book is such a high level of intelligence from your grandfather to your father to yourself. You were the second person I've ever interviewed who's a member of Mensa. Nelson DeMille was the first. Is it true that your IQ was 170 plus, which is exceedingly high? Well, keep in mind that IQ tests are based on math. That's the only way they can be based, obviously. So, yeah, I've always scored usually at least 30 points above genius, but I don't consider it accurate because again, they can only, I, I just happened to be very good at math and that was just genetics. I don't think my grandfather Pete went to school at all, but my dad only went to the second grade. I know that. And you know, his dad and granddad would yank him out of school to work the fields and he just never went back, which was not even the law back then, of course. But my dad, there's no telling what he could have done. I mean, he could literally do advanced calculus in his head. Uh, I was very good at math. I was on the math team in high school. I, I, I became a math major because I take math classes like other people take basket weaving, you know, because I know it's easy. I don't have to try. So, yeah, the IQ tests were accurate. I love taking them. But uh, 
I, I just don't think it's fair because some people are much smarter in other areas, but you, there's no way to reflect that on it. IQ tests just have to be based on math. So that's, that's just not fair, I think. So that's the only reason. I don't want to say that I'm, you know, uh, an Einstein or uh, uh, Stephen Hawkins, you know, who probably is very well-rounded in their, in their levels of ability to learn. Mine is pretty much focused on math. So let's reset. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm your host, Larry Davidson. My guest is Neil Wooten, the author of With the Devil's Help, A True Story of Poverty, Mental Illness, and Murder. Let's talk about the murder. We touched upon that at the top of the conversation. I, I call it simplistically, simplistically the great potato uh, debacle. Involves your grandfather and Raymond Styron, is that correct? And Styron. Styron and the whole scheme about growing potatoes. So you take us from there. Well, let me say that when I started writing this book, and I mentioned this in the epilogue, I believe, is that I think what happened is my dad tried to come up with an alternative story to get his dad off, and people, it's like folklore legends, people just tend to believe them. I had at least eight relatives contact me to tell me, well, you know, Pete really didn't shoot Raymond, you know, and, and these, and I'm like, how can they, it's like, how can they believe these stories? It's like when you hear childhood stories that your parents teach you, like, you know, a non-poisonous snake will still make you sick. If you, they tell you that to keep you away from all snakes. Right. And, and it's not really true. And that was what the mentality was that these are just, they heard stories when they were growing up and they just believed them. But it turns out, and I didn't know this until the book was already, until I already had the publishing deal and we were doing the final proofreadings, there was an eyewitness at the shootings that's still alive today. And I didn't know that. It's a cousin I had never met. I knew she existed. But Raymond's oldest daughter and my aunt, Eileen, her oldest daughter, Mary, was 11 she was there the day it happened and I didn't know that she said they never told people and she didn't want me to change the book she said just you know you can leave me out of it but I can tell you that the way you wrote it is exactly what happened you know he uh, my grandfather shot Raymond with a double barrel 12 gauge shotgun with one barrel and uh, then panicked you know, thinking he's going to, you know, go to prison and he turned it on himself and shot himself. Now, how he survived that, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. If he, if he shot at an angle, I don't know those details. No one is alive today that can tell me those kind of details, but he did shoot himself in the chest with the other barrel and he spent a month at Erlanger Hospital in Chattanooga. Ever, we live in a very rural area and we have hospital here in Fort Payne, but major things have to go to major hospitals. Erlanger in Chattanooga is the closest to us. So he's convicted. I want to jump ahead a little bit. So he ends up going to Kilby Prison in 1963. And, you know, going to prison for anybody, I don't know how tough you are, is an interesting experience and an adjustment. He seemed to have adjusted very, very well. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but you'll fill in the holes in, in my question. He becomes a trustee. And the reason why I mention he becomes a trustee, because... With, there's the great escape, and in your book, I'm not going to give it away. There is a okay. great reveal about your grandfather. So take it from there. Well, uh, I can't take it from the reveal part, like you say. That would be a spoiler. But the 
the one thing that we know, I mean, my father, you know, Travis, he visited him in prison every week. He took Pete's new wife, uh, whose name was Etta. I didn't know that. Her name was Etta, but he took her every week to visit. So he knew the stories of what was going on inside. The story that I wrote in the book about how he became a trustee is imagination. We don't know how he became a trustee. We do know that anyone who has watched movies or read books, you know, reads crime books, know that trustees are only made out of the nonviolent offenders. You know, you don't make violent offenders murderers. You don't put them outside the walls working. Right. But again, my dad and my granddad were charmers. I mean, they knew how to tell people what they wanted to hear. So we knew that he became friends with a guard, and we knew that the guard was instrumental in making him a trustee. The finer points of all that, the conversations that obviously took place behind those prison walls, I don't know what happened, but we do know he became a trustee. The part about him being taken to the warden's house, it was the second time, I don't mention this in the book, but I don't think, but it was the second time he had been taken to the warden's house to mow the lawn, and they dropped him off one morning and uh, my mom was actually pregnant with me when this took place. So the, the pictures in the book, when dad's visiting him in prison, you only see my two older sisters with him. But yeah, he just thought it was too nice a day to, to mow, too nice a day to be captive. And he facilitated his own release a tad early, you know, and as we would learn, uh, the FBI you know, kind of frowned upon that. And I don't know, I put agents in the book when I mentioned the black car with the men in black suits. Right. I don't know if they were FBI. I don't know if the ABI, the Alabama Bureau of Investigation was even around then. And I don't know if the prison bureau had its own agents. I don't know who they were. So I just refer to them as agents, but whoever they were, they didn't like the fact that he walked away. So yeah, he just walked away that morning. So, Neil, I'm a big fan of comedians. I believe they're truth tellers. I'm going to mention two names, Lenny Bruce and George Carlin. Uh, reading the book, you did a, you were a stand-up comedian for a while. So what kind of comedy did you do? Was it therapeutic? And were you, quote-unquote, also a truth teller? Well, you know, I, I was. You know, people – the funny thing about being a comedian is one of those professions where if you go to a party – and people find out, you know, you're introduced. So this is Neil. He, you know, I did for five years. That's all I did traveling the circuit. And, uh, you know, Neil's a comedian. Oh, tell me a joke that, you know, that's the number one response. You don't say that to a dentist. You don't meet a dentist at a party and start showing them your upper bicuspid. You know, you don't do that, but they don't realize that a comedian's act is, you know, they're not jokes. You know, a comedian has a routine and, and comedy is like writing. It's like people ask me often, because romance is such a very lucrative genre, you know, why don't you write romance? I said, well, because you got to write what you know. There you go. When you do comedy, you have to do what you know. So my routine was about, you know, rednecks. It was about hillbillies. It was about growing up in the deep South. I couldn't have got on stage and did jokes from a Philadelphia or New York point of view. It wouldn't have rang true. So, yeah, you have to be – you have to, a, a comedian has to be honest or he's not going to be successful. It's just not going to ring true if they get up there trying to tell the same kind of jokes as somebody in the same other, you know, part of the country. Tells. So I do jokes about, I tell jokes about my dad, a lot of jokes about my dad. I tell jokes about deer hunting, 
you know, us heard jokes about, uh, oh gosh, you know, the, the, the weather in the South, you know, tornadoes, you know, whatever. But yeah, it's, it was all based on real experiences. You just twist them into a way that it becomes entertaining and funny to the audience. So with the time we have left in this segment, I always ask the guests, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? Neil, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? I don't think you got anything wrong. What I think people tend to miss is uh, what I want people to take away from this is that it is the surviving that counts. And the one person that did get it, there was a review from Don Noble, who was a professor at the University of Alabama. He rushed for the Tuscaloosa News. I don't know him. I never met him. I never sent him a book. But he got the book and he reviewed it. And that's what he said. He he mentioned Harry Cruz's memoir, A Childhood. The black guy wrote A Childhood. And he concluded that for a grit, is what he called it, a redneck, uh, surviving is, you know, enough. And so I think that there's a lot of people out there that have a story to tell, but they think that because they're not, they didn't go on to become a, a famous actor or they didn't become a senator, you know, they didn't become, you know, a millionaire after that they don't think they have a story to tell. But I think it's the story that needs telling no matter what happens to a person after. So that's what I want people to take away from them. Well, Neil Wooten tells his story, the place is called With the Devil's Help, a true story of poverty, mental illness, and murder. That's my phone. Don't worry about that. After the break, singer-songwriter Audrey Jones joins the conversation. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry previous interviews and further content visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com I can't skip school and pretend that I'm sick Cough, sneeze inside to give the a little kick You were surprised that my recovery was quick And you could never tell that it was all a trick Well, I can't forgive you But I might forget that I did Why would you give me something to forgive? I'm just a kid too big to act like this I'm just a kid But you're too big to act like this I hope I find a new best friend That sticks Now we swim in the big pond Little fish Hope as I sat with him I only had one wish Please don't become Somebody I'll miss Well, I did forgive you But I forget Like a kid You live inside Memories I reminisce They say we're kids I say, well, that is obvious We all need 
Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. That beautiful voice is Audrey Jones. Audrey, nice to see you again, by the way. Nice to see you. Thank you so much for having me. So when we first met, uh, I told I told you about the podcast. Thank you. You're very brave for coming. In. <laughs> but it's a podcast for storytellers. So for the first song, what is the story behind the song? The inspiration? Well, forgive. Um, well, the first verse starts off when I'm very young. And then the second verse is, you know, mid-adolescence. And then the third verse is um, me as not yet as like a grandma but um the inspiration musically is the song she talks to angels by the black crows okay because you know musicians just rip each other off you know there are only so many chord progressions you can do but they went oh oh was so beautiful and I loved it for so long and um, I was just playing around with it and I started thinking of lyrics and I wrote it in about 2021 I actually I just listened to the voice memo it was August 22nd 2021 so um coming up on its anniversary no not even close but um yeah I think the inspiration probably that day was I didn't feel like going to school considering the first lyric was, I can skip school and pretend that I'm sick. I think that reflects a lot in me not wanting to go to school, as most kids don't. You know, who doesn't love school? But um, yeah, I think uh, many influences were in the song because it's a, a life song. And I'm sure I had, you know, when I was little, I was probably mad about a few things as every human is and then um I said that I would forgive but that I would forget I would forget that I forgave because you know like let's say for instance you're mad at like your sibling because they took your cookie and then you um you, you make a you know handshake you're all fine and then the next day you're like mad at them again I, I don't know if that's a good analogy i didn't really think of that but like you know sometimes you forgive someone when you forget you forgive them and you're mad again that that's what i mean um and then the second verse i'm older and i say i can forgive you but i forget like a kid because i'm not a kid anymore in that one um and then the third one when i'm older it's like i remember to forgive so you have the honor 
of being the youngest person ever to appear on the podcast, Artful Periscope. You're, you're still in high school. I want to go back to your earliest memories of music. When did it come into your life? I was pro- probably birth. Probably they just took me out and sang me some Beatles songs. No, not birth. Um, well, I started playing guitar when I was seven. But the Beatles have been a part of my life forever. Like, I've just always loved them. My parents introduced me to them. It's a big classic rock family. I love classic rock. They're my favorite. It's a favorite genre, I mean. But, um, yeah, I was seven when my dad took me to the Frank Toscano Music School. My teacher, his name is Kevin Allen. He's amazing. He, um, he's taught people with autism who were first nonverbal, and then he gave them guitar lessons, and they sing and play. It's beautiful what he does. He's an amazing teacher. Um, but he taught my dad when he was in his 20s. And um, when I was old enough to comprehend what a guitar was, I was taught I was taught by him. And my dad also teaches me too. He you know, he plays guitar and um, he gives me lessons and Mr. Allen doesn't give me lessons. It's a, you know, big guitar house. So let me ask this because you're a singer, you're a songwriter, you're a performer. So what is the hardest or the easiest for you, singing, playing the guitar, or writing? Um, probably singing, because I feel, I took singing lessons on and off, but I didn't consistently take singing lessons the way I took guitar lessons. So although singing does come like more naturally to me, still I feel like there's so much technique and so many technicalities behind it, so much to think about when you sing, to sing, in a professional sense, but I find that to be the hardest out of, you know, the guitar or the writing or the playing. But um, yeah, it's probably the singing. I love it though, you know. So your mom is sitting here listening to this, hopefully where she's enjoying what she's watching and I think she's got her phone out too. <laughs> your next song is called Your Mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a really sharp segue, isn't it? So set the song up before you perform. Do you want to put your headphones back on or is that okay? Are you good with oh, that? I'm honestly fine without them. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. We don't hide anything here. Nuh-uh. So set up the song Your Mom. Your Mom. <laughs> it's not about my mom. <laughs> um... When me and my ex-boyfriend broke up, I, his mom kept um, <laughs> reaching out to my mom. And I, I guess, you know, it's about his mom and just, you know, how, how I liked his mom, I guess. How she was a cool mom. Do you stay in touch? No. Okay. That would be weird, I think. <laughs> but, yeah. So, let's hear the song. Okay. Your mom. Your mom. better than that night it's not like all that i have known is gone we have been fading slowly for so long well i've got better things to focus on i'm in a new place where i belong
So, as I mentioned, you are the youngest person to ever appear on the podcast, Awful Periscope. You are still a high school student. What is that like for you? Because I know you left school and came right out here, and I appreciate that. So, what is what is your school experience, especially high school experience, been like? Well, I really liked it, honestly. I've enjoyed it overall. You know, no one loves school 24-7, because that's inhuman, I think. But I like the connections I've made of, like, the music I've got to experience, and um, so freshman year to junior year, winter season, I did track. I did cross country and spring and winter every season. Um, and my dad would, I mean, more so my brother, he would train him because I wasn't as motivated in the sports field. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, I would go to the track um, by my dad's house and my dad would take me and my brother sometimes. More so my brother though. He's actually going D1 in baseball. He's great. Where's he going? Um. Not sure yet. He was committed, but then he think he found like another another school that's better suited for him. But yeah, lots of offers. He's a great baseball player. He's my twin, actually. All right. So my, did yeah. he also play at Holy Trinity? No, he he a bunch of different schools. Okay. But anyway, sorry for getting sidetracked. Um, yeah, I did track, and um, I am in the jazz band. I play guitar for the jazz band. Um, the guy who runs it, Mr. Jones, he's a music teacher at my school. He's amazing. He is great. He just has offered me lots of opportunities, and he's just a really funny guy. He's a great teacher. And um, I have played at the dance concert. I was featured in the dance concert, which is really cool. I did In My Life by the Beatles, because the theme for the dance concert was icons of, you know, like the 20, 20th, 20th century, yes. Um, and yeah, I did In My Life by the Beatles, dressed up as a hippie. Um, I played at the Spook Fest at school. I was the ghost of Janis Joplin. More so a rock star ghost. Oh, I, I love Janis. I saw her perform live. Uh, where? Yeah, Westbury Music Fair. Oh, my With Big Brother and Holding Company. I'm giving away my age. <laughs> um, but she was, I mean, I had this conversation with somebody recently about uh, people dying young. Mm. Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Mama Cass. Janis Joplin. Elvis Presley. Because I often wondered what they would be like if they lived past those early years when they passed away. So when you mentioned Janis Joplin, oh my God, she was one of my all-time favorites. She's amazing. Yeah, her voice is like no other. Um, but my costume was less Janis Joplin and more just like rock star ghost, I think. Okay. Yeah, but you know, she's amazing. Like that was actually um, in the dance concert. They danced to one of her songs. They um, it was Cry Baby. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a great one. Um, yeah, so school's been pretty cool. You know, I've liked it. I can't see myself at any other school besides Holy Trinity, which is where I go. But, um, yeah, I think my favorite class, my favorite subject is probably English, just because I love writing. Um, but this year, I'm taking lots of music electives, which I didn't have the opportunity to do in my first few years at school because I'm a senior now, but I'm taking music production and advanced orchestra and world music and also psychology because I want to major in psychology as well. But um, yeah, so it's going to be a cool senior year. So I want to just jump back to the fact that you participated in sports when you were younger and also working with your dad. The fact that you were enduring an endurance sport, which is track and field across country, that helped your breathing and your lung capacity? Yeah, totally. 
it really did, especially cross country because that's like the distance. But my dad actually the other day told me that exactly. He was like, Audrey, you should start running again to get those lungs big, you know, get mm-hmm. those lungs strong. But yeah, and my mom was quite the track star herself in her day. So it really it's, it's in the DNA. It's, your, mom yeah. is, your mom is here. I'm embarrassed to admit, that, admit this, but I come from a family of multiple divorces. So I know when a divorce happens, you may be worse, you may be better, you're never quite the same. So how has that affected you? Has it influenced your music and your view of the world at large? I don't think so, just because I was so young, you know? It's just normal for me, you know? I feel like anything anybody grows up with is normal to them. I don't have anything to compare it to, but honestly, there's probably more pros than cons to it. Like I got two Christmases, I got two houses, I got two birthday parties, you you know, like all the more gifts for my birthdays, for everything. And also like if mom says no, dad can say yes. If dad says no, mom can say yes. It's just, there's, it's great. (laughs) So, so I've always asked the question, we do a lot of storytellers that are writers and authors, and I'm saying it's three o'clock in the morning and you're up. What comes into your head? So I'm going to just twist the question a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. Obviously, you have to get up early for go to school, but not that early. Yeah. What thoughts come into your head? Are you thinking about what the day is going to bring you? Are you thinking of an idea for a song? What are you thinking about at that point? Well, you know, thoughts are like clouds. They come and they go. And I think, well, obviously, I don't have the same thought dialogue every morning. But I'd say late at night, actually, I'm a lot more creative. Right. But, um... I don't know. It depends on the situation at the time. You know, if I have a test the next day, I can be thinking about how nervous I am for that test. If, you know, it changes. But a lot of the time, what happens when a song idea comes to mind, it's either like I'm thinking and then all of a sudden I think this phrase and I'm like, that was pretty poetic. And I just keep writing it and I keep going with it. And then I'll add a chord progression to it. And that's why I write songs usually just, you know, kind of spontaneously. But um, yeah, 3 a.m. I'm sure I've written some songs at 3 a.m. So where do you want the music to take you? A lot of people have great ambitions. They're going to be discovered, and God bless them for that. But the music business is very, very tough. So where do you want to go with the music, and what are kind of your hopes and dreams? Well, um, when every little kid is little, they want to be famous. But... Um, now I just, I love music so much more than I would want like the, the fame, you know? So I don't think my, I mean, of course, success is an aspiration of mine, however that may look, but, um, I'm very into new age spirituality and, um, psychology, and I want to implement that in my career as well. So probably music therapy. I want to be a music therapist. Um, but I also want to keep recording and performing my own songs because that also brings me so much joy. And, you know, recognition is cool. It's how, how you get your stuff out there. So all of us have had mentors in our lives, hopefully. Mm-hmm. You are working with somebody in terms of recording. Can you talk about her as, oh, as a mentor? She's amazing. She is so cool. It is so crazy how we found each other, too. So let me tell you the story. I was looking for a freelance Logic Pro, um, a Logic Pro freelancer, which is a, a software in which you can produce your own songs on your laptop and um 
I looked her up and I saw her little icon in her description. I was like, this girl seems so cool. And she lives in Kings Park, which is not that, f I mean, it's pretty, f it's an hour. Yeah, on Long Island, for the listeners out of the area, that's located on Long Island. Yeah, exactly. Everywhere else was far. But that's not the reason I hired her. I mean, her songs are amazing when I listen to them. And um, she has her own little at-home studio. And it's adorable. It's you can just tell how creative she is just by walking into that space because it's just like there's artwork it's just colorful everywhere but her name is crispy dorado um and she is actually putting out more of her stuff soon she had stuff out before but she took it down so that she could um you know reevaluate she has a vocal range of like an opera singer she can go to the lowest note to the highest note she's it's crazy and anyway she records these like siren songs like very ethereal mythical sounding and she also has her own more produced stuff that sounds like 80s you know like techno and she has like acoustic stuff so so she has two names on spotify and she's putting them out under each i forget which is which but one is crispy k-r-i-s-p-y and the other is um christina dirada but um i just think our songwriting styles are actually pretty similar and um yeah, like one time one of her friends came over when we were recording and she was like, you know, your stuff reminds me of crispy stuff. Like, it's just, I guess we were just on the same frequency and we just, you know, we found each other, but she's great. So as a, as a, you're 17 years old, mm -hmm. as an artist, how do you think you're going to mature? Is your voice going to change? Obviously, you can work on your skills in terms of playing and songwriting, but... Mm -hmm. Do you anticipate some changes coming down the line? It's hard to have a crystal ball. Yeah. And then again, crystal balls are kind of fun. So where do you think you're growing in terms of maturation as an artist? I think, I mean, I can see the significant difference from when even a year ago, how I sounded, how I wrote. Because if you just, if you work on something, you'll progress in it. And I write songs a lot and I sing a lot. And um, my singing teacher, Jill, she is just amazing. She, like, since I've started taking lessons from her, and they've all been virtual, but, like, still, they work great. Like, it's, it doesn't even make a difference. But um, I can just tell my range has increased since my lessons with her. You know, I want to have um, a higher chest voice, a higher belt. I want to... You know, there's so many things. I just want my voice to be as well-rounded as it can be. And I, I love it right now, but it can always, you know, anything can always improve. So so I, I'm kind of a fan of singing competitions. Mm -hmm. So I've been watching for almost every season of The Voice. Do you have an opinion about The Voice? Because I told somebody that's kind of manufactured. It's a reality show and they throw a lot of stuff in besides the actual performances. Do you have a feeling about singing competitions and how they are portrayed? Well, um, I actually did put my video in for American Idol one time, but I just did it to do it. But um, I don't know. I mean, some people have gotten their start that way. Yes. I, it definitely, it's subjective. It depends who you are and the connections you'll make from it. But I do feel, you know, it's TV. Like, you know, sob stories sell. Like people, I feel like on um, some shows, like you have to have like a sad story in order for you to like win. I don't know, but I think I think I've seen that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, if you feel called to it, then by all means, like go for it. But me personally, I don't think I feel that called to do one. So we've had a conversation over the phone about your musical influences. Mm -hmm. One name jumps out at me, going back to the fact of dying way too young, and I want you to talk about other influences. Mm -hmm. But 
boy, what a tragic loss. And she was very troubled. It was Amy Winehouse. And she had such a style. She had a presence yeah. with the hairdo and everything else. She's good. But she had such presence. And for me, once again, I wonder what she would have done because she had this jazz kind of influences going on in her. Mm-hmm. She was a storyteller and very honest, by the way. So talk about other influences. You want to talk a little more about Amy Winehouse? Please do. I love to. I think literally every song on the Back to Black album is just a masterpiece. She's so talented and I don't think she was supported enough by the people in her immediate surroundings. Right. And I think that's like she didn't get the help she needed. You know, her song Rehab was about her father who said, my daddy thinks I'm fine. Like, he didn't want to send her to rehab because, you know, money. She was, he, they were making money off of her. But I remember watching a documentary about her and like, um, she wasn't able to perform the songs that she wanted to, that she had to perform like her number one hits that she was so tired of playing. But no, I, but talking musically now, definitely jazz influences. Right. I love that about her. I love, cause she's just like, it's so classy and it's just timeless. Um, my favorite song by her is probably Tears Dry On Their Own right now. I love that one. It was actually influenced by Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Right. Yeah, but what I love about that song is that the lyrics are so sad, but the melody is like happy. It's upbeat. You wouldn't think it's a sad song if you just listen to the music itself. And most of my songs, not most, I'd say a big chunk of them though, have sad lyrics, but upbeat melodies and chords. And I just think that makes the song more interesting. So what we're going to do, you you set it up perfectly. You teed it up. Set up the next song, Rainfall. Can you set it up for us, the influences and what you were thinking about before you play it? Well, it was quarantine. I was quarantined. Was I personally quarantined? I don't know. But um, it was like the peak of COVID at the time. And um, I don't know. I think it started off as a poem first. Um, It... Hmm. I don't know. I feel like it's such an abstract song because I get very like deep into like, you know, internal things. So like can, can, I, can I ask a question? You mentioned the word abstract. In terms of painting, that's a very important concept being abstract. Do you do you think and feel visually when you write your songs or it's just auditory? Auditory. Okay. Mm-hmm. May, no, I don't think of a specific instance where anything's been visual, really. It's mostly auditory. All right. So, rainfall. Okay. Go for it. to 
Thank my first guest and second one, Neil Wooten, the author of With the Devil's Help. And now in studio facing us, thank you so much, singer-songwriter Audrey Jones. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York. Consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Hey!